0: Welcome to the Bearded Tits Podcast, the nature-based show hosted by me, Jack Perks. Each week I'm joined by a guest from the world of wildlife television, art and science. We take a light-hearted look into what makes these people tick and connect with the natural world so strongly, with new episodes out every Tuesday. In today's show I'm chatting to Springwatch presenter Gillian Burke. Gillian finds herself living in Cornwall now and over the years has done lots of narration and voice work before making the leap to the big screen presenting for many bbc wildlife programs most notably the watchers she's also a biologist public speaker and writer if you can there's a link in the description to buymeacoffee.com and you can help the podcast out by donating three quid to help keep it going or whatever you can afford i'll be honest i'll probably buy a beer rather than a coffee but it's up to you if you could also leave a review that really helps the podcast out preferably favorably and wherever you're listening to it itunes spotify wherever us a review up. Today, myself and Gillian talk about how voice work is different to presenting, if she was nervous about joining the Watchers team, and why we see so few people from BAM communities on nature reserves. Here's our chat. Well, welcome to the podcast, Gillian. All right, Jack, how are you? (laughs) Yeah, I'm good, thank you. I'm really good. Been looking forward to this.
1: (laughs) Me too. Do you know, I am, especially because I've seen you do your talks. I don't know if you remember, do you remember yes, the first yeah, time yeah, yeah. we met was, gosh, it must be like four or five years ago now. I, I almost scared to say how long ago it is, but mm. it was when you were doing a talk and you did a short film as well for the Falmouth University, like film festival that we yeah. had back in the day where we could do things like that.
0: Yeah. It was like, <laughs> I can't remember that. <laughs> Doesn't
1: it feel like a whole different era? Oh God. But yeah, yeah so I remember that was, and um, it was highly entertaining. Very funny. Good. And good. <laughs> I remember thinking, "Oh yeah, <laughs> it's not the last time to see a Jack." Perks. Well, we um,
0: we were plumped next to each other in a prezzo. I think. I think the society just sort of. And this is Jillian. I was like, "Oh right, okay." So yeah. uh, no, it was good. It was good to kind of have a chat and um, eat some pizza, which is kind of pizza. What more? Yeah. What more do you want in life?
1: Well, there you
0: go. <laughs> well, I was looking into. Obviously, a lot of people will know you from The Watchers, but a little bit earlier. And still today, voice work is what a lot of people will know you for as well. And I wondered, how does voice work differ from presenting on screen? Because obviously people might think it's, oh, you're just talking without a camera. But I'm guessing there's a little bit more to it than that.
1: Wow. Okay. That's a really, oh my gosh, I wasn't expecting that question. <laughs> I've got to think.
0: <laughs> I can edit um, out the pause, Gillian, if you no, want to. No, <laughs> it's all good. This is, this is
1: like a pregnant pause. It's dramatic. No. So, interestingly... Voiceover work was what I thought I would do. I never really imagined that would progress into presenting. To just do a quick rewind of like how I got to to, to sitting chatting to you today is I had worked in natural history filmmaking behind the camera in productions. I worked as a researcher assistant producer, then I was directing and producing. And that all kind of had a slightly abrupt halt when um, I had my first child, when I found out I was pregnant, basically. And um, and then during that time, so while I've been doing production work, whenever we went out in the field, I would try and pick up stories for radio as well. Because I always found that we went off into the field to you know, film a very specific bit of behaviour or cover story for the, the production I was on. But there was always something going on and, you know, in the, in the wings, if you like, that I thought was almost more interesting than what we were filming. So i will try and pick up those stories. So I did some radio presenting. I, I to, I'll i be really honest. I only got two commissioned in like 10 years of like hustling in that way. But there you go. <laughs> but in those two programs, I remember somebody saying, oh, you've got, you know, you've got a really good voice for radio and for you should do more of that. So I, that sort of seed was planted and then when I became a mom and I'd sort of imagined I'd hung up my kind of I was gonna say my gloves. It's not boxing, but you know what <laughs> I mean. You <laughs> know, my lens. I don't know. <laughs> Whatever you hang up when you decide you're not gonna work in TV anymore. I had this little thing of like, well, voiceover work is that thing, you know, I really love the process of being in a recording booth. I love the. Pro- I mean, weirdly, as much as I love being outdoors in nature stuff, I actually really like being in a dark little cupboard. Basically, oh, is right. what it is. Like a soundproof <laughs> cupboard, <laughs> it's really cozy space. The acoustics are so warm and gentle, and you know, like the you know, just everything about it. It's like, yeah, you're just it's cozy. And um, and I like the sound of my own voice. Is that like a bad thing to say? Well, I, w- <laughs> but... I
0: wasn't going to say anything, but yeah, I can kind of get that from you, Gillian. <laughs> I,
1: I can talk. I can definitely talk. <laughs> so <laughs> you can be honest, brutally honest. So that's kind of how it started is um, I started doing voiceovers. I did a lot of stuff for free initially. And then off the back of sending my voiceover reel to producers and stuff people started saying oh you know would you do on screen as well and at that point because I had worked you know on productions with plenty of presenters I was like no way no way (laughs) like I see what people do to presenters there's no way I'm saying yes to that (laughs) so it was a voiceover work that I imagined was going to be the thing I was going to do right to the point where my you know, my social media handles and my website and everything is Jillian's voice, Jillian Burke voice, because I literally never, it never occurred to me that that might change and something else would progress yeah. from that. So yeah, that's kind of how it came about. And in terms of the difference, to answer your actual question, <laughs> is um <laughs> the difference between presenting and voiceover. It's, um well, I, I mean, I described it already, you know, partly just the process of being in a recording studio, being in that environment. I love it. Um, there's something that... So I'm fiddling with these earphones, they popping out. I love it because, I don't know, there's just like an element of... It's like theatrical, like, you know, the yeah. inner sort of like you know sort of wannabe thespian and me kind of imagines I kind of swan into a recording studio and you know like hello everybody and they like give you water and things <laughs> and, you know
0: <laughs> well there really must be like, a definite oh. skill to it because I guess you've got to know when to add the inflections and when to emphasize something and you know it's not it's not as simple as walking and then and just going oh and, and now we see the ladybird you know you've got to you've got to know how to to sell it with your voice I suppose
1: Yeah, so there's a couple of things that come with that for me anyway, and I don't know how other people have gone about it. So when I thought I might try and make a living out of recording my voice over things, um, I did do what everyone does as I went to a voice coach. And I found that really, if I'm honest, like helpful and baffling all at the same time, because it's almost like it deconstructed how I thought I speak and how I thought the voice works and how I thought I communicate. And a lot of it was... If I'm honest, I found it really hard to like even figure out what it was I was trying to be doing. So I, I actually found it in hindsight, with you know now more experience, I can lean back on what I was being told back then. But in the moment, I was like, I don't know how to access what I'm being told here. I don't know how to put into practice what I'm being taught. So that was quite frustrating initially. And I think it's mainly because I just was like, just make me sound great. You know, that's all <laughs> I was like. You know? <laughs> And of course, we it never ever like that. <laughs> so just make me sound <laughs> great. So now, if I'm honest, especially if I'm doing just narration, which is as me, so I'm not doing I don't know character voice. I haven't had a chance to do that for a long time. Actually, I really miss doing that. I'm not great at accents, but I felt like I could do certain things because I went to an international school. Right. So I did the audiobook for a book called The Sudden Appearance of Hope which is like a thriller. It's like a sort of futuristic thriller set like in the not too distant future. So a lot of it could actually be real. It's really cool. Okay. Um, but there was like all sorts of voices. The, the The story starts in Dubai, and then the the hero, the heroine who, you know, um, she ends up in this crazy sort of, you know, journey of intrigue and it takes her through Korea to um, San Francisco, where she goes, Italy. And, you know, so all these accents are coming through the book. And then right at the end, literally of a 400-page novel, the last 50 pages, they bring in a Scottish accent. And I was just like, (laughs) no. I'm really bad at British regionals. I'm not even going to attempt it. I was going to say, Um, let's hear your Scottish accent. No. And and I just was like, you kidding me? So I have done like all these other voices and now I've got to do Scottish. It's going to sound ridiculous and everyone's going to laugh, um, which they did. But, you know, at least there was another sort of 350 pages of the novel that kind of, you know, carried it. So (laughs) I got away (laughs) with it. But um, so, yeah, so that's what I mean about character. Whereas now... If I'm doing a voiceover for the Watchers or for Natural History, generally, it's just me as me. And if I'm honest, like for me, there's no tricks there other than, you know, just knowing kind of that your breathing can be affected if you're overthinking and or maybe nervous even. But other than that, for me, it's just pure emotion. It is really about like getting behind sort of, you know, so what is this scene trying to do? What does the producer want people to take away from this moment, you know? And and I think that's what I I genuinely try and give when I'm doing a voiceover. It and you know, it's it's possible to overcook it and sound a little over over emotional. So it's just getting that tone right. But that's that's the beauty of you know, working in that studio environment where you've got you know, the sound technician, your producer, director who, uh, you know, all sitting in giving feedback. And I love that. I love that process. I really don't mind people going, mm, okay, so that was a bit much, you know, <laughs> and I'm like, okay, take it back a bit. Yeah. Okay. You know? um, I, I really, I enjoy the challenge of say a producer will say, you know, that's what I want is for someone to feel. And then the, the words are missing. Cause this is like a really weird space that I think we, you know, that as filmmakers and creators are trying to work in is like, how do you make something someone feel something? Not in a manipulative way, not on a cynical way, but what we, you know, we're trying to share this moment. What is it? And, you know, is it the music? Is it the da-da? What is happening here? So I love, I love it. To me, it's like it's a real collaborative process. So yeah, you know, that's what I miss in these COVID times of recording from home on my own, is um, is that. Yeah, yeah, definitely. Good. No, it's really shit, Gillian. Actually, you know, <laughs> <and it's> like, <laughs> I have to kind of give myself my own feedback. I'm terrible.
0: <laughs> Why not? You, you so. touched on it a little bit as well, but does it matter what accent you have for voiceover? Is it something that you, it's got to be received? I can't even say the fucking word. Pronounce, received, pronunciate. <laughs>
1: RP the pronunciation. Pronunciation. Yeah. Do you know I? Because
0: I guess if it's a if it's a. So let's say it's a regional programme about uh, the Car- Caribbean wildlife. That would make sense to maybe have someone with a Caribbean accent. Whereas if it's something about the Himalayas, would that take you out of it a little bit? I don't know. I guess it depends on the individual. Ah, so something like that. Excellent
1: question, Jack Perks. <laughs> yeah.
0: You know, whereas uh, I mean, because like you say, because you, you grew up, you, you grew up all over the place, didn't you? From what I believe, you've, you've lived in lots of different countries. So you've not you've not got a strong accent from what I can Mine, not that my ear is great at picking these things up anyway so i guess that lends quite well for voiceover because it's neutral i'm trying to think of the right word neutral is a good way of putting it whereas i guess or like let's take yolo for example if it's a welsh wildlife program it would be it would make total sense to have yolo in there talking about that but then yeah like i don't know if it's a australian rainforest but but then he's a, a fantastic natural history person anyway so maybe it would make sense i don't know I'll chuck it to you.
1: (laughs) You know, you know, these, my goodness, these are great questions. And um, it does make a difference, but it's not always in the way that people think. So Yolo would, like, he is, as you say, you know, a brilliant naturalist, great field guy, great storyteller. So if he was like, this is me taking you on with me on this journey to, you know, I don't know, let's say Gambia, let's say, you know, then I would, I would go along for the ride because it's, it's Yolo or, yeah. you know, whoever that it, you know, he's, it's clear that this is interpreting a, a journey and all the experiences through the lens of a Welsh,
0: yeah.
1: Yeah. you know? Um, so that's, that's okay. I think where it, for me, it starts to stray into why this voice is when it's a kind of disembodied voice. Okay. It's just the voice yeah. that's narrating. And, you know, it's we're, we're living in these like crazy times, you know, where as like I, the way I put it is literally every single earthly system is being uh, stress tested at the moment. You know, like from climate to individual species, habitats, legal systems, food supply chains, like the whole thing is being stress tested at the moment it's kind of scary, but it's also like, whoa, you know, so this is an interesting time because as a result, and I think like as humans, like we're like storytelling machines basically, right? So when things start to bend and flex and, you know, under this strain that we're experiencing, which is kind of a multiple, it's climate, it's ecology, it's racial injustice, it's, you know, um, patriarchy, it's everything, like everything at the moment is shifting so our storytelling the way we perceive the way we you know even travel the way we everything is 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 shifting it feels to me anyway yeah yeah, yeah. so your question you know say 3 4 years ago would have just slipped through of like hmm, that's an interesting question but i'm not really you know now i'm like wow that's that's a very loaded question actually because yeah, yeah a disembodied voice that is received pronunciation talking about australian ecology like the land it's animals it's you know it's plants it's systems i i don't know anymore you know yeah. because it's like who owns those stories who owns those narratives and because of the accent what lens are we viewing it through you know and yeah, um it's a good it's super it, yeah. super important question you know for me it would be a case-by-case basis i mean i'm born in kenya as you as you've You've done your research, Jack. Yes, I have lived in lots of places.
0: <laughs> well, I read um, Wiki.
1: <laughs> oh, is that it.
0: Oh. No, no, no. I did a bit. I did a little I bit more digging. Like, <laughs> no, I did. A, I'll give myself a bit more credit. I did do a bit more digging than that.
1: <laughs> so, um, yeah, I mean, I would say that I was born in Kenya. Yeah. I lived there until I was ten. My family still lives there. I go back a lot, and I've only ever seen programs about the country I was born in the country that I experienced firsthand through the lens of other people. And that's problematic because like even the naming of animals, which I kind of find weird anyway, but you know, when you've got an elephant called David, it's like who, you know, it's subtle. But when I think about it now, like I didn't question it for, for years. But I do sort of think, oh God, that's really changed.
0: But it should have had a Kenyan name rather than How, a- How, or,
1: I don't yeah. even know. Yeah, yeah. It's like, it's actually the naming of it is still a kind of okay. like ownership. So, you know, to me, it's it goes real deep, all this stuff. Yeah, yeah, this it does, yeah. Like right to the point where I find that, you know, what we're really, you know, ultimately what we're really looking at is like, well, when we talk about connecting with nature, what we immediately are doing is separating ourselves from it. Yeah. Because in order to connect with it, we've had to be separated from it in the first place. So for me, like, you know, just like as you start to kind of take apart, like, okay, so who's going to tell this story? How are they going to tell it? What does this voice believe of the world? How does this voice see the world? And all those things trickle down into how the voiceless are represented and the voiceless being... The plants, the animals, the everything, you yeah. know. Yeah, um, yeah. life on earth. So it's it's a big responsibility. God damn it. Now I'm like <laughs> I'm done.
0: <laughs> <laughs> I've got a few more to go. Yeah. Sorry, oh, Really?
1: Okay. <laughs> That's like a day's work. <laughs> yeah.
0: Well, we'll go a little bit more lighthearted now, because you mentioned oh. that you um that okay. you've lived okay. all over the place, but you're now living in Cornwall. So I wondered yep. what drew you uh, to Cornwall.
1: So i'm gonna pour coffee it's gonna sound weird no
0: it's fine you you go for it
1: okay i'm not doing a wee <laughs> <So> <laughs> because I'll, that's what I'll, it sounds like I, on the headphones I'm i like... wouldn't
0: i wouldn't judge you if you were julie <laughs> <No. laughs>
1: there's a coffee just as yeah proof. okay <laughs> <laughs> i'll drink it too just to prove mm. um but anyway sorry that's very inappropriate um
0: no, it, it's like if you have listened. well i'm oh assuming boy. you haven't listened to any of these podcasts it can go a lot worse than that so don't uh don't worry oh at thank all. god okay yeah, i'm in good company then no it's yeah i don't send well i tend not to censor anything it's all balls out podcast basically so yeah don't don't worry about (laughs) it it. yeah Uh, but yeah Cornwall what drew you to live there
1: yeah oh god okay 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 there's there's no sensible answer to this question I I kind of say it was the best decision I never made so I I basically followed my heart to Cornwall like my ex is um wanted to live down here he's you know he was sort of surfing and all this stuff so yeah So that's how i ended up here so it wasn't really like a a kind of well thought out decision to be honest yeah um i didn't know anyone down here i had obviously like a lot of people visited a lot spent a lot of time down here but you know i quickly learned that's not really that is cornwall obviously but there's a lot more to cornwall than that yeah so i ended up staying because my kids basically by the time you know the ex became the ex they were pretty settled in school
0: yeah. So yeah.
1: I was, I just was like, well, I don't know what to do. But actually, if I'm honest, I really like it here.
0: But I used to, I can't remember if I you, I used to live in Falmouth. So I lived there for, um, yeah, for three years. So I do, I do miss, I'd love to, I've got to try and twist my wife's arm to, um, to get back down there at some point, maybe. But yeah, I, I did love the thing people, and you probably sympathize with this a little bit. Everyone thinks it's always sunny, but it's, it's quite miserable from, well, all oh, year it can be. Anyway, there's a, it can be quite, it's, uh, I forget what the, t- is it Mizzle they call it down there, where yeah. it's just like that real fine rain. Like you do get, you can get like a, a week of nice sun in the summer, but it's a lot of rain, I found when I lived down there.
1: Do you know what the <laughs> Cornish Tourist Board will not thank us for this? But no. The, the bit that I find sad and funny at the same time is that we tend to get that really amazing kind of hot, sunny weather about a month before the summer holidays begin and yeah. literally the day the schools break up it's just it pisses it down yeah it does. and then it'll just piss it down through the summer until like about the last week of September first week of October and then we yeah. just get that amazing burst of sunshine and then October feels like summer again
0: yeah um I've been on the so, beach in February yeah. I remember it being sunny enough to lie on the beach in Feb and, and the seas gin clear and I'm like what is going on and then when it gets to May June, it's fucking awful. So it's uh
1: yeah. I don't know. Yeah. It's
0: a, it's a weird one. I always ask this every because I've had quite a few ex-Foundwithy people. Have you done Club I before? Have you been there? Do you know about Club i <laughs> I'm asking all the hard-hitting questions in this uh in this podcast, Gillian.
1: I have been known to frequent Club Eye. Actually,
0: oh my god. Oh my
1: god. Do you know? Oh I don't even know I should be admitting this. Um <laughs> As, as one gets older and wiser, um, <laughs> one tries not to end up in Club I. but every now no, and again, yeah. um, oh, God, now I feel really nostalgic because, like, there's been none of this, like, for a whole year. Yeah, I know. But, um, so, yeah, I mean, the worst thing is, like, when you bump, like, this is small town living, okay, yeah. but when you bump into your kids' teachers when you're oh, out on okay. the night. <laughs> And they wish they you weren't there. And you're just all like, we're just going to pretend like we haven't seen each other yet. Yeah. Yeah. And, and unfortunately, like, I'm sort of shifting into the age of just being that embarrassing mom now, you know.
0: <laughs> embrace <laughs> like, it. Absolutely yeah. embrace it. But, but you know, yeah. you know what? Club Eye's got quite a, a healthy natural history alumni. Like, I know Steve Backshaw's been in there. I know Lizzie Daly's, obviously she used to live there. So there's quite a good number. I mean, they're probably not aware of all these... Uh, <laughs> wonderful people that have been in there but they should have a plaque on Sign the side photos on the wall yeah they should do I think so yeah I, I used to enjoy that place far too much when I lived down there and um I don't know I think I'd be the kind of the weird guy by the back of the wall with a pint now I'd be a little bit um too old for it but I don't know I say that you get a couple of beers in you and you're like exactly yeah, I'm young I, was again. Just watching I can do go. this
1: I know you I've got you know <laughs> the measure of
0: you. yeah I could do that
1: I really struggle with how to, to say, well, you know, quite often if I'm doing like, I don't know, a talk or something, and it it's like, oh, well, how do we, you know, introduce you? And I'll always say, okay, well, you know, Julian, okay, so I it literally, it's like, I can never settle on one thing. So sometimes yeah. it's broadcaster, sometimes it's TV producer, sometimes it's presenter, but I'll say biologist because I'm like, I need to explain why, you know, like why I'm here, Right. But then I'll qualify going, but I haven't actually, you know, done, been in like active research for about two decades. So I'm not really sure I, I deserve <laughs> the title anymore. But anyway, yeah. biologist, there we go. And then almost inevitably, I'll go through this long explanation of how I think they could introduce me. And then they go, a lady like this naturalist, Julian. And I'm like, oh, my God, I'm not a naturalist. <laughs> <laughs> And I've seen it in print. I've seen it like and I just literally I just die a little death every time I see my name and someone says I'm a naturalist because I'm not
0: like, okay.
1: you know, he said Yolo's a naturalist. I mean, it's because for all sorts of reasons, it's. Um...
0: So I guess the definition of that then is that a naturalist is someone who's like deeply has got a very deep knowledge of lots of things in nature. I guess that's the kind of broad term. Whereas you're interested in nature, would you say, but then you don't know every little bit about, say, a ladybird's leg or something like that. Is that a fair way of putting it? A
1: ladybird's leg, I would say that's (laughs) straying into biologist territory. Knowing all the different types of ladybird and knowing when they're on the wing and when they're in their larval stage... That's more of a naturalist. That's a nat- okay, so a naturalist is someone who doesn't need a degree, in my view, or any yeah. formal education. But this is someone who, by virtue of spending time yeah. observing, recording, observing, recording, reading, observing, recording, reading over okay. a, a vast amount of time, acquires this incredible knowledge of the individual components of a system and, um, and how they all fit together how they fit together starts to stray into ecology, like the connectedness of everything. And then if it's down to, well, how does a ladybird move its leg? How does it power its wing? How does the air flow over its wing to get it airborne? That starts to you know go into biomechanics and biology. Yeah. So it's a really like, for me, like the umbrella terms just um, don't do justice, like no. all the different fields and disciplines. So where do I fit in all of that? <laughs> I still don't know.
0: I <laughs> don't think any of us um, do half the time, no. Yeah,
1: exactly. Yeah. I, I'm just someone who's, I guess, very curious and also someone who is really determined to break down the barriers or perceived barriers between what people think is, oh, well, I couldn't possibly know that because that's science. Yeah. Or that's like, you know, what what... Clever people do when they go to university. I'm like, no, not at all. You know, so I guess ultimately, I'm just like an envoy. You know, like yeah. an ambassador, an ambassador. Yeah, that's a good way of putting it, <laughs> isn't it? Yeah, and I, I really love it. I mean, I, you know, I really. I think I'm kind of like, just like an old hippie at heart, really. You know, I just. I'll look out just, for that you know, on the next
0: Watchers series. Just <laughs> being Burke, old hippie. Old hippie.
1: I really am. And it's just getting worse as I get older.
0: <laughs> well, Cornwall's a place. If you're an ex hippie, Cornwall <laughs> yeah. is definitely the place to work. Uh, oh, be. no,
1: I'm totally channeling it. Because <laughs> I genuinely, you know, there was a time when I keep this all hidden away, the kind of like the stuff that I do, which is in like my little sort of homage to, you know, to the, the I don't even call it the natural world anymore, because I really want to try and, like re-educate myself and how I use language so that this idea that, you know, we're reconnecting with the world or the natural world. I'm like, no, we're in it. This is it. We are it, you know? Um, So like for me, like if I get in the water, if I get in the sea, that that for me is like a spiritual moment because I genuinely feel, or I like to take a moment to think about, oh my God, I can't believe I'm sharing this. But anyway, I take a moment to think about the energy it's taken for that swell to reach me the wind to reach me yeah and so for me that's like on a kind of physical scientific level that is true but like it then starts to become like more of a spiritual experience cuz i'm like oh my gosh like i am literally connecting with something on the other side of you know the atlantic whatever ocean i'm in and like i'll take it a step further i haven't been uh, well, the two oceans I sort of feel like I know are the Atlantic and the Indian Ocean. Atlantic because I live here, Indian Ocean because I grew up in Kenya, and um, and my my grandmothers came from Seychelles, so that's very Indian Ocean. Yeah. Um, and to me, the quality of the energy. Okay, guys, get ready for this. <laughs> <laughs> I'm literally completely Is that the Indian Ocean is like mother energy, and the Atlantic Ocean is like brother energy.
0: So they're
1: different than, you know, it's not just all seawater that's, you know, got different salinities. And of course, you can measure in those ways. But to me, they are still different. Like, and I don't know how to express that beyond, you know, one has mother energy, one has brother energy. I'm really fascinated with and becoming increasingly fascinated with um, like, you know, different labels, indigenous knowledge systems, traditional ecological knowledge, um, the original people, whatever you want to call it. And that existed in Britain very much so. I'm really fascinated with, I guess, what is animism? You know, the kind of the the the, the belief and knowledge systems and the way of understanding the world, which um, imbued everything with characteristics and life, you know, in a way that we, well, I haven't been educated in, you know, in the system I've been educated in. I haven't been brought up to think that way. But realizing that actually I was kind of born that way. Yeah. You know, I really felt this before I had the words for it. And then I, have, I felt like I had to hide it away because it wasn't very scientific. And now I'm sort of going, oh, no, you know, I'm bringing this back, you know, because I, think, I, I find it fascinating.
0: Yeah, I think that's a really interesting way of putting it, because I've spoken to a few. I spoke to David Lindo before and he, he, he describes it as having the force like he can predict oh, really? when birds are going to turn up. Yeah, he's like a, a birding Jedi. And a few people have had things. But yeah, and I think they are because they're in this scientific community. They're ashamed in a way to say that. But I guess whatever, uh, whatever it is, you know, if it's working for you, then don't be ashamed of it. Just embrace it. OK,
1: I'm going to flip the tables on you and, and ask okay. you about that. Do you get that when you're, you know, fish whispering or whatever you call it? I don't know. <laughs> <twitching. But> like, <laughs> yeah,
0: twitching, yeah, twitching.
1: Do you ever get anything like that? you can say no
0: <laughs> no no I'm just trying to think really I'm trying to wait to describe it I mean there's certainly a joy I don't know if it's it could be spiritual I suppose it I, I and this might be more of a mental health thing but it there's a there's a recharge it's like um exhaling so when I'm by a river I just feel like the weight's being lifted Of if I've got pressures or stresses or whatever mm. they all they, they might come back later but they just go even if it's just a little brief period. And and I think being in the water, like you were saying, whether it's the sea, that whether it's the rush of cold water or that complete environmental change, it does improve your mood. But I know that's not quite what you're asking. But along those lines, I guess, is what I would say. So after this, I'm going I'm going to try and do some spawning pike. Not not do, I'll reword that. Go and film. <laughs> join, join in. I'm going to join in. Um, I'm going to film some spawning pike, hopefully, um, this afternoon. But... Um, so I'm quite looking forward to that because I've not been in the water properly this year yet. So, yeah, I, uh, I can't wait to do that.
1: I was asking you because Chris Conroy, who I'm sure you know, he's um, I, yeah, I
0: do know Chris, friend yeah. of the
1: watches and responsible for pretty much all the amazing summer footage we get. Um, I remember doing a, a day of filming with Chris where we were going to lay down sort of um, little... Um, GoPro cameras in the gravel beds. Yeah, I saw spawn. that film.
0: Yeah,
1: yeah. Yeah, and I tell you what, I just found so fascinating was that there was something going on which was beyond Chris's kind of science head. Like he was reading the water, reading the gravel yeah. bed, and and was it, his ability to predict where those salmon are going to spawn, not just where they're going to spawn, but where they're going to, you know, carry out certain types of behavior is phenomenal and that is that's what I'm talking about yeah. <laughs> you know that's the that's the the hippie side of things you know yeah. where you start to be able to read something and you can't even under, explain how you know what you know and so that's where I think you know as anyone who's interested whether it's because you're doing a degree or you're you know a filmmaker photographer just someone who wants to have that benefit of being out in the natural world like pay attention to that sort of sixth sense because there is, there's real value in that. And that's something that in a sense has kept humans going for as long as they've been humans. So, you know, would be, would be wise to not, not lose it because it doesn't sound scientific. Yeah. Um, No. I mean, you know, the science has absolutely, is very, very important, but you know, I feel like it could be balanced out a bit more.
0: Yeah, no, I agree. Definitely. And, uh, We've, we've mentioned the watches a couple of times now so i want to talk about when you joined because was it were you anxious at all because it's obviously this become this kind of institution and obviously at the time uh i know you started before martin left so it wasn't like martin got when you came in it was there was a bit of a mixing there but there were a few um hardcore fans who were quite vocal maybe they didn't know all the facts behind it uh about him leaving and you joining but was there any any pressure? Were you worried at all, or was it just roll up and and kind of crack on with it?
1: Sorry, I'm trying so hard to suppress my laughter. <laughs> Hell yeah! yeah. Um,
0: <laughs> I bet, I bet. Um,
1: okay, so I've been asked this a lot actually recently. Yeah, well, I'm sorry um, to bring it up again. No, no, it's all right. It's all it's all good. Um, it's partly annoying because my earphones keep popping out. But um, so. When I when I joined the watches, um, I wasn't really desperate to be a presenter. What I was desperate to do was to try and get on TV, the 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 medium that I understood and, to be honest, had the only real experience of in my professional life. I was I was really keen to start um, telling more honest stories about the state of the environment. So. So there's a little bit of backstory here. So you know, like I said, I'd worked in production behind the camera and I'd never wanted to be a presenter because my my understanding of the it's, role and it's the way funny how many presenters work... say
0: sorry to interrupt, but it's funny how yeah. many presenters say that. <laughs> very, very few ever say, I always wanted to be a presenter and I became a presenter. It's always some hodgepodge circumstances it's, that yeah, find their way to it.
1: Yeah, that's called life. <laughs> yeah.
0: Is that what that is? Yeah. <laughs>
1: um so yeah so i i i always felt that you have much more editorial control um behind the lens and i I, to be honest i think that's true still um but what happened is once i'd had kids i really thought that i was never going to be working in media again i couldn't see how i was going to make the two things work um but as as my kids got sort of to school age and a bit older and at this point um I was single so I was definitely like okay how am I going to make this work um I had a couple of things that happened um I had started so I this I'd moved down to Cornwall by this point I'd gotten really aware of plastic pollution um in a way that I'd sort of understood in my head and I read about it a lot but living here and being you know in, in a sea in a town that's by the sea so you know i'm seeing the beach almost daily um particularly with my kids just i was like holy shit, this is bad this is way worse than i thought and um and for, for the for my first response was well i'm just gonna do what like any concerned citizen does which is i'm gonna write to the council because surely surely you know so i became this like total nuisance caller with cornwall council <laughs> and it got a bit ranty i won't lie um and especially about dog poo bags hanging yeah, in yeah, yeah. hedges that like, like baffles the... me. anyway yeah. so um at the same time a really important paper came out what was important to me because it changed my kind of trajectory was um it's called the open, an open letter to humanity a second notice it was 25 years on from the Earth Summit in Rio in 1992. So now we're in 2017 and this paper has been published. It's got like several thousand scientists as signatories. And it's basically going in 1992, we knew shit was bad. It's gotten even worse in the 25 years um, and what we're we going to do about it. So, the urgency of the climate and ecological crisis for me, that I mean, I knew this stuff was going on, but that's when it landed viscerally. So, those are the two things that basically that. Um, so, you know, seeing plastic on beaches, this paper, and then the final ingredient was a little hermit crab rocking up okay. <laughs> on a beach, you know, um, in Cornwall, and one that had been extinct in Britain since the 60s, ah, since a big oil spill. Saint Piran's crab. Yeah,
0: Piran's, yeah. So yeah.
1: I'd been kind of I'd gotten frustrated and realized I'm not going to get anywhere by just calling the council every single day and complaining about the amount of plastic I'm seeing. I had I had sort of escalated that in my head to going to um, Cornwall Wildlife Trust to surface against surge, like all the local organisations that I knew, and that's how I got sort of how I then heard about this story about this this hermit crab, and I thought, well. God damn, if there's ever a good news story, that's gotta be it. So I took it to the watches because at the time it was the only place I could see that might take a story like that. And sure enough, they did. So that is how I got my first gig. Yeah. Um and um I yeah, and then there was there was like a kind of I can't remember what they called it. I think it was like called Presenter's Boot Camp or something, but they they had held <laughs> okay. an event where you know, loads of people had gone in to, I guess it was like an audition. I didn't think of it at the time, but I guess it was like an audition. So one of the producers had said, you know, you this would be really great. There's nothing to lose. You just go there, you, you know, it's a day of just doing screen tests and da-da-da-da-da-da-da. So I did that and that that sort of all kind of aligned, you know. They were like, well, you know, we think this would be a really great thing. And so I did my, my St. Perrin's crab item and a couple of others and then, really, at that point, I was just like, I'm loving this because I found a place where I can actually tell the stories that I think matter in the way that I like to tell them. And when the whole kind of... Um, when when everything kicked off, and I think it was on, mainly on Twitter, yeah, like, yeah. that was what I was not prepared for because, in my mind, I was like, well, I've done a biology degree. I've worked in this industry for 15 years. I, I was born, like, you know, in an environment where there was no question like you know my mom worked for the environmental program my dad was very outdoorsy you know my whole life has been in some shape or form been been about the the world we live in and how to make it a better place and I literally was not prepared for how my I guess credentials were going to be questioned yeah in that way yeah And it was it it really not my confidence. I can see the difference in sort of like when I watch my presenting pieces up until that point, and then everything after that point. I'm like, holy crap! Okay, that got you. Mm. Um, But to be honest, you know, Jack, like I only talk about it now. At the time, I was like, what, 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 what do I do about this? You know, do I give it energy? Do I give it life, or do I just do my thing? And so my, my approach to all of that was, I just didn't look at Twitter, but I don't have a Twitter account anymore. No, Um, I think that's a
0: sensible thing. (laughs) Yeah, no, I I was just like, it can be a toxic environment.
1: (laughs) Oh my gosh. I was like, this is not making my life any better. So, um, yeah, so I just didn't look and I just had this attitude of like, I'm just going to do my job and, and carry on caring what I care about and, you know, and that's it, basically.
0: Yeah. Do you, are you <laughs> so, finding it's better now? I'm guessing, like, there's more people have, have have warmed up to you. They've got there's been enough time, surely. <laughs>
1: um, I don't know is the answer because I still no. don't look. No, okay. Um, but okay. I love what I do. I absolutely yeah. love what I do, and I really believe in in um, in the need for um more honest um, yeah. storytelling in in this space. Um. I, I'm kind of, I'm talking about it more now because I feel like, you know, I'm at a point where I'm sort of looking at um, the kind of younger generations coming through. And for all sorts of reasons, whether it's a color of your skin, whether it's your gender identity, whether it's accents, whatever it is, there are going to be barriers, right? I really yeah. believe that. and um, And I just feel like, I don't think the way the way I the way I dealt with all of that was got me through. But if I don't talk about it, then someone else is going to have to deal with it exactly the same way. Yeah. So I, that's not okay. Like it got me through. It's it's um, it was my strategy. I just have this like mantra, which is I only have so many hours of the day and so much energy. That's like the currency I'm given every day when I wake up, and it's my choice of how I spend that currency and um and I as much as possible try and make sure that however I use that time and energy that I get to the end of the day and I feel good about my day it doesn't always work but anyway <laughs> so you know it's a strategy it gets me through but I don't see why everyone else has to go through the same thing yeah. anytime someone does something that people just go you know you don't deserve to be where you are then it's like no we, we got to fix that and I yeah. and I really feel that um it can be done you know, I'm yeah. I feel very hopeful when I look at kind of younger generations coming through.
0: Yeah, no, I think it is it's getting there. There's a lot of work that needs doing, and that kind of segues very nicely into uh my next question, which is do you think there's a reason why we don't see so many people from BAM backgrounds um on nature reserves or outdoors? And I guess by extension on on TV as well, because it's still um fairly white male middle class for a lot of it i know it's changing but it is still fairly like that so i just wondered if you thought there was a reason more we'll stick more with nature reserves for now but like why why is it when so for example i mean i'm in nottingham if i go to um the big nature reserve name is attenborough and even though we do have uh you know large band communities in nottinghamshire it's very rare that you see uh that that many people who aren't white generally gray-haired staring at a a lapwing or something and it's i don't know what the i don't know if there should be a reason but i don't know why that is and i don't know if you've got any any insight into that
1: yeah um so yeah first of all like the labels so for me language does really matter
0: yeah um yeah
1: so like i like for me i'm a black woman that's basically as simple as it gets yeah um but Anyway, you know, I'm going to go down a rabbit hole if I go with that one. Um, (laughs) (laughs) I was just like, "How long do we have, Julian?" Um, (laughs) (laughs) So, the honest answer is, there's no single reason for that. No, no, no. I agree. Um, Like, I think the the easiest way to explain to someone like why it why people don't feel welcome for example so anyone who's not white doesn't feel welcome is you know when and it wasn't just me you know when i sort of joined the watches in the way that things played out but i've seen other items on country file like any time it just it just attracts so much toxicity and racism right definitely yeah that you're just like really do i have to kind of explain to people that i'm not sure the thing is it's you're never even sure who it is that feels that way about you and yeah. i think that's what's really um what's very um unnerving when yeah. you know if, if you're stepping into environment that a you're visible minority b um you know you're not nece- you know you, you're not necessarily sure if you're welcome there and then there's also just the the way that the um like talking about a nature reserve the way the accepted way of experiencing having that experience is so for me um and i'm not saying there's anything wrong with it but at the you know i find that there's only like very um one or two ways that it seems acceptable to have an experience in a natural environment yeah which is to be there with a purpose with a yeah. pair of binoculars to, to, you know, with your, your list um, and to have that knowledge. And, you know, there is something deeply satisfying about like spotting something, identifying it or not identifying it at the time, going back, you know, uh, so I'm not taking away from that experience, but it isn't the only way to do it. No. And I think that's one of the things that um, like the NGOs, the people that run the reserves um maybe fail to recognize it, it starts to feel like a club yeah because just by stepping Always into clicky. that space the vocabulary the the kind of way to to hang out it, you know there's a way of being that is almost like taken for granted but if you're if you've not been exposed to that if you've not been brought up in that if it just feels really alien
0: yeah. So yeah,
1: yeah. There's, there's all, you know, the barriers are, ob- you know, they're very obvious barriers. They're very upsetting and deeply upsetting barriers that are systemic. Um, and we can go on and on about that. Um, but, you know, one of the things that I like to talk about is just even the, you know, it kind of leads back to what we were talking about earlier, um, which was the different ways of understanding how the world works around you. Yeah. And when I say the world, I don't mean like, you know, the the kind of human made world. I mean, the whole world. Yeah. And um, one of the examples I use um, about my personal experience, because that's the thing I can speak with the most authority. Yeah, of course. Is I was born in Kenya. I lived there until I was 10. My family moved to Austria because my mom worked for the United Nations. And then at 18, I came to Britain. So I had this kind of, you know, kind of childhood and adolescence in three parts essentially Um, and now i live in britain it's now where i've lived for the most of my adult life actually my whole life now and um and i present on a program about british wildlife however i still feel like i speak a second language when it comes to my ecological literacy yeah so um an example is like i like an oak tree and a hazel so if i try and you know if i think about what those trees are the best i can do in my brain is the outline of the leaves okay okay and in fact the oak i see in real life the hazel the image i've got in my head is actually a, um, an illustration it's a drawn image it's probably something i've seen in a book somewhere yeah i don't conjure up a real hazel leaf when i no. think of hazel right so rewind to my childhood like right now, if someone, and I actually don't even know what the um, real English name for this tree is, but it's what we call monkey nut tree. It's not peanuts, but what we call monkey nut trees. In okay. Kenya. The English name in Kenya. Um, I can tell you right now what that tree smelt like. I know what the seeds feel like. They're covered in like fur. I know that when you peel off that fleshy, furry layer of seed, there's a hard nut inside. And when you crush that open, it smells like pepper. I know what the leaves smell like when you crush them and they've got furry underside. I know what the bark looks like and it's always covered in lichen. Um, I have so much detail because I grew up in that environment and I was allowed to roam in that environment. Whereas I don't have that that level of detail of anything in in a British landscape. So that level of separation exists even before you're hitting into the kind of the identity politics stuff, you know? Yeah. And I think to me like that's why I, I kind of really struggle with the labor art because I'm not a naturalist I can't walk into a British landscape and just reel off what everything is you know I've learned a lot but it's still like a second language I still have to like pause for a moment and just reach for the word in my head the name of my head whatever's yeah. going on you know whereas um and then the, the irony is because I left when I was so young I don't I have the experiential, information in my head but i don't have the names for things in my head no. kenyan wildlife no so you know i know what a lot of things smell taste and feel like but i can't tell you what they're called
0: no well you but sound here, a like I a naturalist. Know the
1: names. <laughs> i know just... like i know the names of stuff but i can't tell you what they smell taste and feel like because yeah. i never had that childhood experience so when we're talking about making the, the natural world more inclusive i think for me that's the level i want to be working at you yeah. know, if I'm going to take a group of kids out, I'm like, okay, forget the names of stuff. Let's figure out what this smells, tastes, and feels like. Yeah. Obviously, if it's not poisonous and all that stuff. And yeah. do a health and safety kind of risk assessment. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But you know what I'm talking about. I guess it's just
0: uh, igniting that spark, isn't it? Just just mm. get them. And uh, and I think that's true as well. And I, I should, I was really bad because I have talked to other people on the podcast about this. I can't remember who it was. But it's interesting that you say there are levels of interest. So people assume, right, you've got to know everything. You've got to know what bird that is, what bird that is, but surely if someone is just walking with their partner or their family and they go, oh, look at that, you know, it's, let's, let's say it's a golden eye, but look at that duck and they're enjoying it, then that's good as well because they're a person out enjoying nature. It doesn't matter that they they don't know exactly what its name is and they don't know its scientific name, they're still experiencing that and enjoying it and they may very well remember that and say, oh, do you remember when that duck did that funny dance, that display, yeah. but surely that's that's just as important.
1: Yeah, I would say. I mean, I guess, you know, just to answer your your question about like, well, why are you know, where are the barriers yeah. for um, marginalized people, people that don't feel that the countryside and nature nature's welcome them or belong to them or any of those things? Um, you know, there's a place to tackle that for sure. Um, but. You know, I'm I'm very, you know, here's the old hippie again, I'm very much of the mind that, um, you know, we, we arrive in this world without the identities of race and gender or any of those things. We're just like, you know, kind of souls. Right. Yeah. And um, and of course, the way that we get labeled, the way that we identify will affect right from the get go our opportunities in life, um, how we're going to get treated how well you know our social mobility you know all those things our health like everything it does it does it's not that it doesn't matter it really matters but for me like right now we live in a space where there's a lot of otherness going on you know and um our thinking is getting siloed and people are like well i belong to this gang and you belong to that gang and and I, I I don't know what to do with that because like in my yeah. heart, I'm like, okay, you know, I know that like on a soul-to-soul level, that you know, when I'm out and I want to just share an experience with someone, like for me, this is how I'm gonna do it. It's like, you know, if it's with kids, I'm like, let's make mud pies and yeah. decorate them with leaves and find seeds and da-da-da-da-da. And in that experience, I know they're learning something because that's how I learned. And yeah. I realize that I actually have an amazing knowledge of you know the detail of things because I spend so much time playing like that and I'm like that's really important to me that if I have that opportunity to interact with children and you know not obviously COVID but you know when I go into schools and all that stuff then I'm like let's not worry about like how you know the bird feeders and how many birds are coming to the bird feeders that's great stuff I'm not saying it isn't but let's like really get this stuff in you know like what it smells tastes and feels like yeah nature and bathing then, is it
0: nature bathing is that the term or it's a, yeah a there's, a, there's words for it yeah, or yeah, you know yeah. but
1: it's kind of what we do It's what it's humans that's what we do yeah and yeah, yeah. um so you know for me that's like the level that um yeah you know that's where like my soul is like okay <laughs> you know we're connecting and yeah. and then everything else of course there's work to be done
0: definitely yeah. No, I, I know it's not it's not a simple question. And um if you not not that I'm not trying to be a pun, but it's not black and white, is it? It's it's shades mm-hmm. of grey, isn't it? So I think that's uh, that's the way to look at it. Well I'm gonna end on this on this last question and maybe this might bring the hippie out in you, but if you could speak with a teenage Gillian, uh, what would you say to her? Probably go to Club I less, I would imagine.
1: Don't smoke. <laughs> <laughs>
0: Jeez. did you use the smoke did you oh, or still do god. maybe <laughs>
1: no I don't anymore I managed no, okay. to kick it after my second was born but yeah um yeah that was dumb yeah I was really pointless um um yeah but that's it
0: good advice okay <laughs> <laughs> don't, don't, don't do drugs don't no. do... <laughs> <laughs> oh yeah 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 yeah, <laughs> oh, <no>. yeah exactly <laughs> oh god well, look, um, it's been an absolute pleasure to have a have a good sit-down and a chat with you, Gillian.
1: Oh, thanks so much. I love these and um, really enjoyed having a chat with you, Jack.
0: No worries. Like, and, take... and
1: enjoy, I hope the, the, the Pike perform.
0: So do I. So do I. Good luck also, with that. Fingers crossed. So yeah, look, yeah. take care. Might you
1: even see that on the watches.
0: But, well, <laughs> who knows? <laughs> that was the amazing Gillian Burke. I, I edited a bit out, but there's a bit halfway through where a postman knocks and gets a little bit arsey and I nearly thought I was going to see Gillian wrestling him. It's on the YouTube version though so if you want to see that check out the, the YouTube channel uh, Wildlife Exposed TV that's where we put all the the face-to-face interviews and uh, it's just quite a funny moment halfway through but it didn't really work for, for the podcast bit. It's always a pleasure to catch up with her and talk about a variety of subjects so great to see that she's doing really well. Don't forget you can follow us on Twitter at TitBearded and on the Facebook page, The Bearded Tits Podcast. Next week, I'll be talking to one show and Country Fire presenter Joe Crowley about his journalistic work into the amount of raw sewage entering British rivers. This has been The Bearded Tits Podcast. I've been your host, Jack Perks, and I'll see you next time. Cheers.